now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening. This is The Interpreter Foundation Radio Show. The Interpreter Foundation exists to encourage study of the gospel and faithfulness to the church by making the latest scholarship available in its journal, publishing books, holding seminars, creating films, and by providing roundtable discussions of the scriptures. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org, where you can find all of our materials, including these radio programs that are posted as podcasts, and you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or through any of the other podcast apps on Apple and Android devices. If you like this show, tell your friends about us and write a review on iTunes or on your favorite site for podcast apps. I'm Steve Densley, and tonight I'm joined in the studio by co-host Mark Johnson. Steve, good to be here. And John Thompson. Hey there. We are going to be spending this first hour talking about the Book of Acts, chapters 10 through 15 for our New Testament in context section. And then next hour, we'll be talking about the Book of Mormon Witnesses and about uh, the newest article in the Interpreter's Journal, which is an article by Professor Matthew Bowen, who should be joining us uh, toward the end of that hour to talk about his article as well. But uh, let's start off by talking about Acts chapter 10. And uh, Mark, why don't you lead us on uh, this chapter and we'll uh, start a discussion on what's going on here. Sure. Let me pull it up here real quick. You know, one of the interesting things I found about Acts that I don't think a lot of people talk about, well, they talk about it because it's, you know, purportedly written by Luke. You know, it's got the same, you know, introduction, the same authorship style as Luke, but you don't see really too many combined efforts about, you know, Acts and Luke as a, a unified or a semi-unified work, which I think is kind of a shame. We've got the Gospel of John right in the middle of it, almost kind of interrupting the the flow of it. Um, but, you know, I think if you look at the, the two of those, you know, together, it really kind of helps as an interpretive guide for for Acts. You can kind of understand a little bit better about what's going on, you know, with, uh, you know, Luke and his, his main themes in mind as you read through Acts. So in Acts, we are getting um, set up for, you know, this uh, eventual Jerusalem council, which takes place in Acts 15, um, where the gospel is, you know, announced to be shared with everybody. Um, up to this time, um, the gospel has been shared with uh, Samaritans who were sort of Jews, depending on how you want to argue it. You know, historically, they, you know, have common roots as the Jews. Um, Judaizers were, or, or God-fearers, depending on the translation, were, you know, offered the gospel and have been joining the church. Um, you know, these are, you know, Jewish people who, Oh, sorry. Um, who people who've joined uh, not Jews by birth, but people who've uh, you know joined the Jewish tradition um, and then followed uh, you know Christ. Um, we're finally getting to a point where you know it's going to have a, the announcement where the gospels announced to uh, you know be for everybody. You know, preached fully to the Gentiles. 
So we start off with, uh, here in Acts 10. Well, one of the interesting things I think about that, Mark, is that in Acts 10, uh, this takes place in Joppa, right? And um, do you, uh, John, Mark, you remember what happened anciently in Joppa? Well, there are a number of things that happened anciently in Joppa, weren't there? But um, as far (laughs) as a parallel story or a story that... uh, uh, that maybe uh, foreshadows this to some degree. So th- this is, you know, Joppa is one of the places where you can go. If you take a tour to Israel, uh, you might start off in Tel Aviv, and you might stay in a hotel on the beach. If you walk just down the beach, there's Joppa or Jaffa. And it's just such an interesting city. It's very ancient. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stories. Um, you know, you've got this rock just off the beach where, uh, you know, it's supposed to be where Andromeda was chained, you know, in Greek mythology. Uh, this is, this is an ancient, uh, an ancient port. Uh, still used today, or you know, you'll see you know little boats come up there. Um, but you know, one of the oldest ports in the world, and so much history uh, of things coming out and going on there with different you know during the Crusades and uh, uh, the Egyptians. Uh, you had um, boy, let me let me think. Who who was it? Was it? Um, oh. I'm try, trying to remember if it was Thutmos or so, somebody, you know, formed a, a base there, I believe, you know, fighting with the, the Hittites or, or something. I, mm. you know, there's just a lot of, of history there. So uh, Jonah is someone who found himself there in Joppa uh, when he's uh, contemplating his mission call, trying to decide, do I go to those mean, nasty Ninevites. That's right. Or uh, am I going to hightail it to the end of the ends of the earth? And, uh, you know, I think that's so interesting that that story starts in the same place where Peter has his vision. So, Mark, why don't you keep going and tell us about what happens here with Peter? Okay, so Peter has this vision where um, the Lord shows him a, a sheet um, that's being lowered, and on all this sheet are all sorts of animals, including unclean animals, unclean according to the you know the laws of Moses. And the Lord commands him to eat um, these animals. And Peter says, "I'm not going to do that because I've, I've never done that before. I've kept that commandment." And then God says to him, "You know what I've called clean. You know, um, you don't call it um, common, or you know, don't call it unclean." Um, and this happened uh, three times which was interesting. Verse 16 says it's happened thrice. And it reminds me of uh, other visions that, that happen, um, you know, uh, multiple times. Um, in the book of Genesis, it talks about how Joseph of Egypt um, was interpreting dreams or had dreams. I'm trying to remember the details of the story, but it talks in there about how the doubling of the dream was evidence of it being from God. Um, you know, Joseph Smith saw the angel Moroni in his room three times is another example. These things happen you know, often and multiple times, just to get them through our thick mortal heads. Um, finally, Peter um, partakes, and you know he's left with this left with this vision, this this dream of what it all means. You know, one of the interesting things about this, I think, is that he's hungry. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, if, again, you go to Joppa, and there's this there's this place you can go. <laughs> it's it's uh, I just I laugh every time I think about it that it's it's this. 
oh, this this house that it doesn't look like it's much older than a couple hundred years, uh, let alone a couple thousand. Mm. But it has this plaque on it that says, this is where the Apostle Pete had his vision. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the thing about it is it, it very likely could be the location, you know, certainly not the the dwelling. Um, it's, you know, I don't even know if it is a dwelling. It's it's just this, it, maybe maybe it's sort of a, a monument to Peter. But, uh, but you know, it talks about how Simon the Tanner, he's, he's, Peter is staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner, and, and, and because he's a tanner, uh, you know, it's really stinky, and, you know, you've got these animal carcasses, and, and it's by the sea. Mm-hmm. And um, that's exactly where this, this uh, you know, location where the Apostle Pete is in, in Jaffa. And, um, you know, it talks about how it's the uh, sixth hour, and, uh, you know, it was customary for Jews sometimes to eat in the middle of the day. It talks about how he's really hungry. Um, and... Uh, you know they were making they were making the, the food, uh, and so he falls into this trance. He's he's up he's standing up on top, you know, wandering around, and he gets to the, you know falls in this trance, and he has this vision of food, okay. But it's food he's not supposed to eat, mm-hmm. and he's told to eat it, and he's he's hungry. He wants to eat, and he's told he should eat this, and he and he says no, I'm not I'm not going to do that because I'm not supposed to eat that. I, you know, I think there, there seems to be something interesting there going on, that he is, and I think that the, the, the writer of Acts recognizes this, that it's, it's significant that he's hungry and that he has this vision of food, but he says, I'm not going to eat it. And, um, you know, I, I think that that, you know, maybe at the very least it, it shows, you know, kind of the resolve of Peter that, um, you know, even though he's really hungry, uh, he's not going to eat stuff he shouldn't eat. Um, but then he's told that uh, you know no it's now it's time and um, so I think there's something interesting going on there in the narrative and uh, not sure exactly what but I think it's significant enough to point out I think so and I think it's interesting too how God uses um, Peter's situation um, to um, provide a an answer to uh, you know um, thoughts and prayers that you know maybe he and the other apostles have had um, you know if he's hungry and it's lunchtime. You know, one might be tempted to say, oh, it's just, you know, it's the pizza he, you know, had for lunch, and that's what's causing him to have this vision. Oh, but well, he's delirious because he's hungry. <laughs> exactly. You know, any number of things. But, you know, as the scriptures tell us, you know, God speaks to us through our own language, you know, and, and, and a, you know, in our times. And Peter's going to be receptive to this message. It's going to be something that resonates with him because that's what he's experiencing. I think your point that you made earlier, right, about— uh, Jonah having his, like he 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 leaves, uh, you know he doesn't go to Nineveh but goes to Joppa instead, right? right to, takes takes a boat from the, this harbor, right, and heads the other direction, right. And so the whole idea being similar to Peter, and that he's reluctant, right, to eat of this unclean animal, and that's kind of what you know Jonah's feelings are about the Ninevites, right? That they're Gentiles in essence, and. We don't have any dealings with the Gentiles, and so what are we doing? You know, and I think this kind of sets up even a bigger um, context, you know, behind what's about to happen here, right? Because, um, it, you know, Jesus himself, as he went around with his apostles in Matthew 15, right, came across a Gentile woman who sought a blessing for her daughter and uh, who was sick and wanted, to, wanted Jesus to heal her, and Jesus ignored her. 
He wouldn't speak to her at first. And then the apostles, you know, later would say, you know, send her away because she keeps bugging us, basically. And, and then Jesus says to his, his apostles, he says, um, you know, that I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My mission is to Israel. The woman hearing, I guess, this persists, right? We know the story and says, uh, please, Lord, right, help, mm-hmm. help me. And then Jesus d- directly at her says, right, that it's not meat to take the bread that's meant for the children, a.k.a. the house of Israel, and give it to the dogs. And, and so it's like almost three times he's kind of shut her down, right, this ignoring, telling disciples, I'm not here except for the house of Israel, and now directly to her saying, mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm not here to give you bread. But to her credit, she persists even more and says, I'll take the crumbs that fall off the table, right? And, and, and then that goes back into the whole uh, book of, or the law of Moses, because under the law of Moses, um, when you're harvesting the fields, right, the law of Moses requires you to leave the edges of the field unharvested, and anything you drop, right, mm-hmm. you don't Those harvest. Those gleanings, yeah. Right, so, the, so that the stranger, including the Gentile, uh. could come through and pick up the leftovers, right? And, and so that kind of her experience with Jesus is echoing that idea. I'll take the crumbs or the leftovers that fall off the table. Um, but, um, but the hope, and then, and then added on that, third Nephi 15, when Jesus comes to Nephites, right? And he says, <clears throat> you know, I told them back in Jerusalem that I had other sheep and they thought I meant the Gentiles. But Jesus said clearly, he says, he says, but the Gentiles shall not at any time hear my voice, right? But that they were supposed to be taught through you and through the Holy Spirit. Right. And um, and so so Peter has this as a backdrop, right, with the Savior not going to the Gentiles himself. And and um, and and so I think this moment, you know, Mm -hmm. has got a really interesting context, but it is an amazing reversal in church history. Well, and it's another example of where Jesus suggested to his disciples where things were going and they didn't quite get it. You know, and I, I wonder how often that happens to us, where, where we hear things, maybe in the scriptures, maybe in general conference, you know, where we're told what we're supposed to be doing or what to expect, and then we're taken by surprise anyway. Um, but, you know, it, it always raises this question in my mind, you know, John, what do you think? Why is it that Christ said, I'm only teaching, you know, the house of Israel right now, and, and yeah. we're not t- going to the Gentiles yet? Yeah, I think it's also interesting to think about it, that that's how he acted in mortality, right? So among the Jews in Jerusalem and then among the Nephites, he says, the Gentiles should never hear my voice. And then if you think about his post-mortal ministry, right, we learn from section, uh, you know, 138 that Jesus didn't go among, a.k.a. the Gentiles of the spirit world, right? Those who were the non-covenant people. He only ministered to those who had made covenants, and then he sent them with the Holy Spirit to go preach the gospel to those who had not made it. So it's an interesting pattern that we see, right? Um, and, and the question why, I, I wonder if it's similar to the idea that the Holy Ghost isn't granted to everybody in the world either. Only those who made covenants, right, have the ministration of the Holy Spirit, uh, except in the case of bearing witness and testifying, as missionaries do, and people can receive that spiritual witness. But the Holy Ghost will and abide, as we're taught, right? It's not a constant companion until you make a covenant. So I wonder if Jesus' personal ministry is always to his covenant people, 
right? But then he's a very participatory God. He wants us to be engaged in this work with him. Well, and he wants everyone in the world to enter into this covenant. Yeah. And, and so maybe there's maybe there's some kind of a, an object lesson here, you know, that um, you know that, that, that Christ's gospel, you know, the fullness of the gospel, or or the you know companionship of the Holy Ghost, or whatever, uh, is for those people who have entered into this covenant and become Israel. And so, you know, and we, we know that all of the Gentiles, you know, everybody who's ever lived on this earth will have the opportunity of, of being fully exalted, of accepting the gospel and all the blessings. Um, and so we, we don't need to feel like uh, the people who were living on the earth at that time who, you know, did, were, were turned away. Uh, are, are ultimately missing out on anything. Everybody gets their opportunity. So it's more of a, I think that, that, that there's a, a lesson here that we're supposed to take from it, sort of a symbol, uh, you know, a model uh, of some sort. And it probably is, probably does have something to do with the difference between those who have become covenant Israel or literal Israel and those who are not. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think as far as um, Christ teaching only to um, Israel in his mortal life too. I think in the New Testament at least, there's you know also a practical aspect to it where you know he just needs to get a good centralized base going, um, you know, for the the church to endure and survive. You know, without without that, if they were preaching to the Gentiles, you know, right away, that might have lent um, you know an air of Uncredibility. Well, there might have been political ramifications. There might have uh-huh. been, you know, difficulty in spreading the word. Absolutely. Uh, where you know, uh, Jesus is a Jew preaching to Jews, trying to help them understand what the, um, uh, you know, what we call the Old Testament was really talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that might have been difficult if he's all this you know, springs onto the scene and starts cavorting with with Gentiles. That may have been very confusing to people whose mindset was that you don't even eat with them. You know, you, you know we don't we don't associate with right, those people. Right. And, and so I think you're right. There probably was a practical aspect of it, political aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to establish your base and work out from there. So, yeah, there may be a number of things going on. Well, the Lord said to Abraham, right, that through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so I can see this as being a fulfillment of that. Yeah, I like that. One of the things that I think is interesting about this vision, too, and I um, is, is just the fact that all this, this food um, and these animals were presented on, on this sheet. I kind of see this sheet as like, um, like a big prayer shawl. That they used to used to wear and and still do um, with um, little gamadias in the the four corners, you know those little, uh, little square yeah, square, yeah, square shapes, square, right? Yeah, and I, I kind of see that as just being this this four squared thing, this four squared sheet. Um, to me, it kind of subtly symbolizes um, you know where the gospel is going to go to the four corners of the world. At least that's the way I like to visualize. Yeah, no, head. I think I mean there's definitely the text. It specifically says it's knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, and it really does seem like the author there is saying this is symbolic of the whole world. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that one of the the prayer shawls, or even the the table colors that you see in the mosaics at uh, 
Oh, where is it in Ravenna? Well, there is it. So Ravenna, you can yeah. see, uh, you know, one of uh, on the wall there in the chapel. But um, in addition to that, if you go to Masada, there is a, um, a little museum right outside the mm-hmm. entrance of Masada. At the you know right outside where you buy the tickets and everything. Uh, it's not very big. It doesn't take very long. You, you know, most tours are really clipping through, and you know, if you, <laughs> so, if you have a chance, go into this museum. There is a. Uh, I, I, it, it's probably a prayer shawl. It's a little bit unclear. It's a, it's, it's a piece of uh, fabric from 2,000 years ago, and it has a square symbol mm-hmm. uh, right there on the fabric. Um, you know, of course, they, you know, they're not really sure exactly why, but, um, but there it is. And, you know, and so it's, I, 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 we have to, have to think that this uh, appears elsewhere on, on other oh, such so, pieces yeah. of material. Yeah, I've seen the, the picture of that uh, particular scrap in uh, Yigail Yadin's uh, book um, on, uh, on Masada. And, yeah, it's good, good stuff. I want to go there someday and see it in person. That'd be cool. That's a that's a good point, Steve. Um, any other thoughts on chapter ten, or at least uh, this section of chapter ten? Well, you know, it's it's I think significant here that it it's talking about um, how uh, the gospel falls upon the Gentiles, uh, or that the Holy Ghost falls upon the Gentiles. Um, you know, and this this comes through this. Um, well, you've got Cornelius, and, uh, uh, you know, you've got this um, Roman centurion who, it says that he was a devout man, and, uh, you know, so interesting that um, you have this man that's not uh, not a Jew, uh, who is called a devout man by the, the writer of Acts, and that he sees a vision, and... Um, you know, God, it says, well, it says an angel of God came into him saying, Cornelius, and he says, what is it, Lord? And he says, thy prayers and thy alms are come up from a memorial before God. So so this Roman centurion is praying and giving alms, okay? Now, I mean, there were, there were some of the Jews at this time that uh, were not so exclusive, that they they would have uh, you know denied um, you know I don't know if they spoke in terms of salvation but um, you know d- denied you know being you know going to heaven to people who weren't Jews as long as they lived you know a good life uh, now there were others that were more strict about it you know you've got to be circumcised and you know all that um, but uh, you know the, you know the, the writer here of Acts, you know if it's Luke or someone else, they, they seem to recognize that you can be a good person and not be you know a member of the church. Um, God or God can send an angel to you, can give you a vision, um, and and in this play, in this case, you know he's told this Roman centurion is is about thirty miles up the coast. In um, we, we 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 talk about it as uh, Caesarea, uh, which is confusing because there are at least two Caesareas that we talk about in this in the scriptures. Uh, this one's Caesarea Maritima, as opposed to Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Maritima, this was you know this was a capital of um, Herod's um, well you know his his, his jurisdiction, and um, 
you know, so you've got this Roman garrison there. It's he's part of the what's called the Italian band, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought would be kind of a cool name for a rock band. <laughs> um, but you know, it's the it's the Italian band, which just it simply means that that's I guess where his um, his his group originated, because uh, obviously they're not in Italy anymore, but. They're in Caesarea, and he's told that he needs to send some people to Joppa, and um, you know, and find Peter, and who's he's he's lodging with Simon the Tanner, and um, so you know, th- this is how this is how Peter and this centurion meet, meet up, and you know, I think that it's it's a, a sort of a second witness to, to Peter of what's going on that he has this vision, and then. He's, you know, he's got these uh, these guys that, it, it, well, it says in verse 17, Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made an inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Um, you know, and so it says, while, 19, it says, While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men seek thee. Um, so, so he goes down to talk with these men, you know, and and uh, and they say, you know, Cornelius has sent us to you. You know, Cornelius has, uh, you know, he's had this vision, and um, you know, and so, uh, you know, Peter then recognizes the significance of what's going on here, and and that you know that, that angels are being sent to Gentiles, and he's had this vision of the unclean beasts, and mm-hmm. he's and he's putting it all together, and you know, in verse thirty four, he says. Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Um, and so then you've got, um, you know, it says, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles was also poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Okay, so this could be this could be pretty confusing to members of the church mm-hmm. because you know it, it, if if you're reading this um, just taking it all at face value, it sounds like you know all these guys are getting the gift of the Holy Ghost before they're baptized, and um, you know that's not exactly how it works as we understand it. So what what do you think is going on here? What, why is it that uh, it's described in these terms? So I. I, um, t- before I answer that question, I'll put it back into context again of what I mentioned earlier in Third Nephi 15. When Jesus said, you know, I have other sheep, he said that they understood me not, for they supposed it had been the Gentiles, for they understood not that the Gentiles should be converted through their preaching. And they understood me not that I said that they shall hear my voice. They understood me not that the Gentiles should not at any time hear my voice that I should not manifest myself unto them, save it were by the Holy Ghost. And I just loved it that this moment, right, with Cornelius is a direct fulfillment of the Savior's words. It's Peter's preaching, and it's the Holy Ghost that has now come upon Cornelius. And, um, and, and so now we have this moment where 
those who are hearing, right, and and experiencing the witness of the Holy Ghost, um, you know, I think uh, convey this attitude that they that they want, they want desire to make this covenant with God, um, and so so. I think in this moment, what we're seeing is is an outpouring of the Spirit bearing witness of the words of Peter, um, the gift of the Holy Ghost as a function of being a member of the covenant, right, is something that would come, you know, later. Okay, so how is it that people are getting the gift of the Holy Ghost before they're baptized? Well, as I just said, I think this is more of a a, a witness of the Holy Ghost. You know, maybe it's just a... Right. I, I, so I, I don't think we should read too much into that phrase that it was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. And, you know, and it may be that when we use that phrase, gift of the Holy Ghost, that we, we shouldn't think of it as, you know, too much of a, a hard and fast, you know, title for the ordinance, that there's there's something going on with that ordinance uh, that's not, it's not, just the the fact that somebody is entitled to the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. They're, uh, you know, they're becoming a member of the church. They're confirmed a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, that, that, they, they, that happens by the laying on of hands. Um, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't appear as though because the Holy Ghost fell on these people that they were just automatically members of, you know, this movement. It was important for them to be baptized. And, um, you know, we, we would say that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, after the baptism, they're entitled to the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost so mm-hmm. long as they're faithful to their covenants, right? And we believe that the Holy Ghost doesn't necessarily just fall on somebody as soon as they're confirmed a member of the church. No, no, my eight-year-old would probably <laughs> tell you that. He... Yeah, no, I mean, we, we have stories of that happening, mm-hmm. you know, especially like, you know, in the early uh, church where you have, uh, when, I, when I say early church, I guess, um, time of Joseph Smith, you'll yeah. have people getting baptized, and they come up out of the water speaking in tongues. Um, you know, and so you have these kind of miraculous events that I think were, you know, I, I, you know, intended maybe maybe like Cornelius, you know, this miraculous event that's ushering in this new dispensation and, you know, trying to help people understand, okay, something's happening here. This is really different, and this is dramatic. Um, you know, when we confirm people members of the church, um, sadly, there are many who maybe never do receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or receive the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's dependent upon their faithfulness to their covenants. Um, I, I would maybe I would maybe uh, phrase it um, this way: um, Section one hundred nine, right? When Joseph Smith dedicates the Kirtland Temple, I love how he phrased it. He said that uh, that. Those who come to this house, he says, you know, bless them, Holy Father, that they may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books, that they may seek learning by study and also by faith, as thou hast said, and that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost and be organized according to thy laws and be prepared to obtain every needful thing. So I, so, so, we believe, right, that everybody on this earth has access to the Holy Ghost. It's, it is a gift from God, right, to, for God to pour out his spirit upon somebody. And, um, and so, so for them to experience that, to be speaking in tongues even before they're baptized, that's not a problem, right? We talked about this, I think, last time about people having gifts um, of Be- the spirit. People receiving revelation yeah. before they're members of the exactly. church. Yeah. yeah. But, 
But once you become a member and you receive the the official gift of the Holy Ghost by ordinance, then then you are entitled to those gifts and the powers of the Spirit as a you have a claim upon them, right? As a legal claim almost, uh, because you're now a covenant member. But individually, we still have to, as you all were saying, right? We still have to live the gospel so that we grow up in that spirit and until we attain the Holy Ghost in its fullness. So I think we're all on this journey still, right, of obtaining the Holy Ghost in its fullest sense. Uh, but we get to experience it along the way. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, we, we think about how the Holy Ghost can sanctify us. And, um, you know, I, I suppose there are different times in our lives that we— you know, have that sense that we have no desire to do evil, but to do good continually. And then the next day, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe it's not quite there anymore, right? Uh-huh. And and so we grow up in yeah. this, and it becomes more of a, a, a strong influence in our lives as we remain faithful to it and continue down that path, um, stay on the boat, yep. right? And I love how Joseph connects it to the temple, right? That when we come to the temple and worship the that we grow up into the fullness. So, yeah, and you know, it, it's interesting too. We'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll get to this maybe later, maybe not. Uh, but when Paul and Barnabas are, you know, when he's, he's Saul, uh, they're called on their mission. Um, it, it's specifically in chapter thirteen, verse three. It talks about how uh, they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them they sent them away. So uh, there was, you know, a specific uh, ordinance that took place for their mission call and to to send them off on their missions. And so we see these kinds of things popping up in in, uh, the the story of Acts. We shouldn't presume that they did everything exactly the way that we do it now, or, you know, we shouldn't expect to see that. Uh, But when we do see some of these tokens of order in God's house, you know, that things are done a certain way, they're done with authority, um, you know, they're done by the laying out of hands. Um, I, I think it's noteworthy, and we, we ought to point these things out. I, you know, it's, I just, uh, I'm surprised, um, you know, occasionally we still see members of our church uh, drifting away to um, evangelical churches, feeling like that, uh, well, you know, we, we emphasize these uh, you know, kind of works-based aspect of things too much or the ritual-based aspect mm-hmm. of things and that, you know, that all you need is, you know, grace. And um, and, and that's that's not what the Scriptures are teaching. There, There's an order to things. There's an authority. There's a, there are rituals. Uh, and, and if we're going to take the Scriptures at face value, I think we have to acknowledge that. Absolutely. And I think it's important, too, like you mentioned, that, um, you know, God's dealings with us might be different throughout history. You know, the, the ordinances um, are going to stay, you know, the, the same and the importance of them, but how the ordinances were performed, you know, might vary from, from time to time. Right. Okay, well, um, so Mark, you want to uh, lead out now on chapter 11? Okay, nothing. Okay, yeah, that was a good discussion on 10. Let's see. Um, chapter 11 talks about how God grafts or extends the gift of repentance to the Gentiles, which is a big deal. Um, this is, uh, you know, further steps along the, the plan of salvation, you know, beyond uh, baptism and uh, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, they now have uh, repentance granted to them. It talks about that in um, 1118. It says, when 
they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then God hath also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And I can just imagine how um, game-changing this was to, you know, some of these people who, like we've talked about just a little bit, weren't, you know, all that keen on letting the, the Gentiles into the, into the game. Then it also mentions Stephen in the next, uh, next chapter. He has a bit of a story there on Stephen. Um, let's see, and then I've lost... What else did I want to mention here? Here we got Barnabas uh, leaving with Saul. They go off on their missions. Yeah, I think that, um, well, again, just going back to the point um, about how difficult it was for people. I mean, apart from the, the passages I mentioned earlier where Jesus wasn't speaking to the Gentiles, he actually, when he sent his disciples out, his 12 apostles out in Matthew 10, he literally tells them, um, uh, not to go to the Gentiles or to Samaritan regions, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, and so, so again, the, I, we have to put this into this context that that not only have they, as a Jewish people, for a long time, have had a separation from the Gentiles. Even in the early days of Christianity, under Jesus's tutelage, right, there has been somewhat of a separation. Um, but you know, there is an understanding. At least, again, the Book of Mormon, I think, gives us that understanding that that Jesus didn't mean for that to remain that way, right? That there would be a time when the Gentiles would would receive the gospel. And as he said, it would be through your ministry and through the Holy Ghost that these things are going to happen as you preach. Um, And so in chapter 11, right, we have um, uh, the church in Antioch, right, which is a, a northern Syrian area, right, where we have a bunch of... um, converts there who are from all over and so we have jewish christians those who have joined the christian church from the jewish faith and then we, and now we have all these gentiles who are now kind of mingling and and this was kind of a, a really great experience right this and experiment right antioch was this melting pot of of jewish christians and gentile christians if you want to call them that <laughs> so, well it was the, the yeah. third or fourth largest city in the empire yeah it may be anywhere from 100,000 to maybe 600,000 people. Yeah. Yeah, massive. And, um, and, and now we have this, uh, you know, congregation of members of the church who are coming from all kinds of backgrounds. And this is going to set the stage for a lot of, you know, conflict. Um, because, again, Christianity seemed to be like a Jewish sect for a long time. But now we got these Gentiles coming in. And and so now we're going to have to have some struggles of what this means for the church as a whole. And, and you know, do Gentiles come into the church through Judaism, right, into Christianity? Um, or can they just come in uh, without any kind of adherence to the laws that the Jews typically would obey? Well, it's significant, too. In Anti- so we, we ought to mention maybe there are a couple of different Antiochs that we read about in the Scriptures. Um, you know, this one... Uh, it's sometimes referred to as Antioch on the Orontes, that, which refers to the Antioch River. Sometimes people refer to it as, as Syrian Antioch because of, uh, you know, it's within that area of, of Syria. The, the other Antioch is further north. Um, but uh, this, is, this is the uh, major, uh, you know, maybe in some sense the third uh, headquarters of the church, uh, you know, eventually, where you have Jerusalem, 
later you've got Rome, uh, you also have Antioch, and there's just so much going on here. This was, you know, as it says in verse uh, 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Uh, there's a cave church that you can visit in Antioch that some people think is perhaps the first church in history. Um, you know, I mean, other other religions, of course, had temples. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the Jews, you know, had their synagogues. Um, but, you know, in terms of a church, uh, especially a Christian church, uh, this may be the first one. Before this point, they were meeting in people's homes, and after this point, for some time, sure, were, sure. well, I mean, heck, even today, right? There, there are places in the world where you know they'll have a sacrament meeting in somebody's home. Uh, but the church starts to congeal and solidify, and you know, kind of institutionalize, where you've got you know a name for these followers. They, they often in the scriptures, we we you know in this early period, they're referred to as followers of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love that. By the way, <laughs> yeah, we have a couple of passages, uh, even in the readings this this time, right, um, where they're they, they are called the way. Yeah, right? and and, uh, and the Christian, the term Christian, it's not really clear here who's calling them Christians. They were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, uh, the people of Antioch were, you know, like you know, like John said, they, you know, this is a metropolitan area, and um, you know, they uh, they they might. It, it might have been pejorative. It might be that they're, you know, ridiculing these people, um, is calling them names, you know, these, how oh, these Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about what Christ means, it's, you know, it's a, the Greek form of the, the word Messiah. Um, you know, so it's sort of like the, you know, these Messiah followers, you know, these people who, you know, believe that they are following this Messiah. You can imagine how it could be sort of a pejorative term. Yeah, sure, for, sure. Maybe, uh, you know, not unlike, how uh, you know members of our faith maybe are you know sometimes called Mormons you know maybe initially is sort of a pejorative and and then at some point we just own it and we say yeah that's that's right mm-hmm. we're we're Mormons. Um, I mean, it, it, obviously, let's stop and think about what the word Christian means, right? Because Christ is the Greek version of Messiah, right? So what they're saying is that these are the Messianists, right? These are the these are the Jews who believe the Messiah has come. I think it's kind of what it means. And so, yeah, maybe some Jews would have thought that as kind of laughable, right? And maybe... Right, because they don't believe it, you know? Right. And so they're like, oh, you guys think he's already come. You know? right. And, and there, there were lots of people who were springing up from time to time saying that they were the Messiah, you know? And so you can imagine how some people may get jaded by this. Like, oh, yeah. There's another one. They you know, one of these guys that thinks the end of the world has come. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, But then it, this, this becomes the term by which, uh, you know, this movement is known uh, throughout history now. It's the Christianity, the, you know, the, the Christian movement, and these are Christians. And uh, so I just wanted to make sure we, we recognized uh, that that's what's happening here. That's, it's the birth of this movement here in, you know, with, with Antioch and so much that's going on uh, there. And I'll add that, uh, just, just for the listeners, the, the verses in the book of Acts where the Christians were first called the way are um, Acts 9 and 2. 19 and 9 and 24 and 14 um sorry 24 verse 14 so 9 verse 2 19 verse 9 24 verse 14 um but then yeah then in antioch they become known as the christians that's right this is the way (laughs) it's interesting too how if you go and read um the dda 
which is you know that early um, church, church handbook. church handbook right um, you know it off it starts off by you know introducing um, the gospel as as the way and then the other thing about is interesting about the the DDK too um, John Gee talked about this on a, a show a few months ago talked about how in the DDK it only mentions um, one gospel when it's quoting you know um, scripture and it, it it quotes from Matthew it doesn't quote from any of the other gospels. So to, to John Gee, that indicates that um, Matthew might have been the, the earliest one written, hmm. since it doesn't discuss the, the other Gospels. And he said it also doesn't discuss the um, really effects of the Jerusalem Council so much. So he places uh, the authorship of the DDK uh, before um, Acts, or, yeah, Acts chapter 15. So that might be, uh, might be something to you know, merit further research for sure. Yeah, it seems to have a lot more... Um of a Jewish flavor, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you read the DDK, it has it has, um, uh, and I think scholars have kind of pointed this out that that it uh, it kind of seems to echo some of the, um, um, you know, Law of Moses uh, kinds of ideas of still being kind of important. And I think I think you know, there's there's a big struggle I think in scholarship to understand. What's really happening with this struggle between the Jews who are Christians now and the Gentiles who have become Christians? And, and you know, we have this phrase, you know, this term Judaizers, those who want to insist that those who come into the gospel are circumcised and they come in as Jews first and then become Christians because to them Christianity is just a f- part of and fulfillment of Judaism. And I, and I think that, um, there, there is truth in this, right? That this idea that that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Himself said, I, I haven't destroyed the law. He said, mm-hmm. "I've I've only fulfilled it." Right? It has an end, but an end in me, meaning that it's now become new in me, and and so everything about the law of Moses is still kind of part and parcel of the the fullness of the gospel. Um, it is a preparatory law, right? It's a preparatory priesthood we would we would say the ironic priesthood that's kind of associated with this lesser law mm-hmm. would be preparatory but it's all part of um that and um and so so you can understand why some people are struggling with uh why aren't people embracing this lesser law as part of their their process or their their conversion into christianity right and and so there's some you know i think there's some interesting tensions that are happening here and that's, I think that's just all part and parcel of the, you know, growth of the church, too. We talked about how, you know, they weren't um, meeting in churches, for instance. It was just a, a home church. Um, you know, there wasn't necessarily a central authority, um, at least not as we understand it today. It's so easy for us to get, you know, the word um, from um, the brethren downtown in, in Salt Lake. Um, you know, back then, you know, you could have anyone just walk into town and say, hey, I'm I'm one of the apostles and— you know, then you got to figure that out, figure out who they are. Well, now, before we uh, head on to chapter 13, let's just briefly mention what happens in, in chapter 12. There's some really great stuff going on here. Um, well, and, and tragic stuff. Uh, Herod, <laughs> uh, he, he uh, kills James, the, the brother of John. Remember, we think of Peter, James, and John as being the for sort of the first presidency. Uh-huh. They're the ones that Jesus, you know, we, we, we uh, understand in our church that that's uh, who received the keys 
you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that they're the leaders of the church at this point. So James dies, and later we read about a James who's a preeminent leader in the church. We understand that that's a different James, mm-hmm. uh, James the brother of our Lord. So this is the James who, in the, the gospel, says he didn't believe in Christ. You know, he, he's got you know Jesus's brothers and sisters. They, you know, they're kind of really skeptical. It's like, right. well, that's the guy we grew up with. You know, <laughs> who's he saying he's the Messiah? And uh, but later James becomes you know a prominent leader in the church. Very, uh, and, and we think the author of the book of James. So the first James then dies. Uh, Herod kills him, and uh, Herod finds that this is this goes over well with uh, with uh, his his uh, followers, and so he decides he's he's got it out for the leaders. So he goes after Peter as well. Uh, he ends up putting Peter in prison, and um, then Peter is woken up by an angel who says, "All right, get your things, Peter. We're out of here." Yep. And so they this angel leads Peter out of the prison, and uh, so Peter ends up. On the uh, the doorstep of um, it says Mary, the mother of John. Um, not really sure who that is. Almost everybody na- was named Mary back then, um, but uh, you know maybe this is uh, and, and, and who was John? Okay, so it says mm-hmm. whose surname was Mark. So John Mark. Some people think that he's the author of the Gospel of Mark, um, and so. Uh, he's, he shows up on this doorstep, he's knocking on the door, and this young woman who's named Rhoda, who um, you know, we, we might translate that as Rose, uh, mm-hmm. she, she turns up and, and hears Peter's voice, I guess without seeing him, and you know, scared to death. She's thinking, well, what's going on? You know, Peter's in prison. So she runs back. She leaves Peter standing there on the doorstep and runs back and tells everybody, Peter, I've heard Peter at the front door, and, th- and they think she's crazy. They're like, ah, oh, that's, you know, no way. And, um, you know, meanwhile, Peter's still out there. Hey, you know, <laughs> not a trap. Let me in on the door. Um, so anyway, they they uh, they go ahead and let him in. And, um, uh, you know, they're astonished that he's been let out of jail by an angel, no less. So then later, Herod shows up arrayed in royal apparel, sitting on his throne, you know, make, giving an oration. And the people say it's the voice of God. And uh, and Herod, it says immediately, the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So he's dying of some kind of, like, you know, worm disease. Um, and, and so Herod... Uh, Herod Agrippa uh, is dead, and, and then later we'll read about another Herod Agrippa. That's it's called Agrippa rather than Herod. Um, but uh, that that uh, I think are you know some there, there's some important plot points there that help us understand mm-hmm. what's going on later that I, I didn't want to skip over. And so now we get to that spot where we've got Saul and Barnabas. Uh, you know, it says that uh, you know that they've returned uh, from 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 their you know, the, from the work that they were doing, and yeah, Barnabas was sent to Antioch, particularly at beginning, right, to kind of help the church along there, and then he grabs Saul to help him with the Gentiles in Antioch, right? And and so this is that this is that that point where uh, by revelation uh, it says they they fasted and prayed. Um, you know, it says the Holy Ghost said, "Separate me, Barnabas and Saul." For the work whereof I have called them, so Saul and Barnabas are called by revelation to a mission, and uh, the uh, it says that when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So then uh, Paul and Barnabas head off on their mission, and uh, so this is where we start 
chapter 13. Um, so let's see. We've only got a couple of more minutes. <laughs> and so we've got uh, up until chapter 15. Um, Mark, what else do you want to add before the end of our hour here? Well, we have a lot of name changes. You mentioned um, Agrippa, and we've got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. So earlier, you know, um, Peter was housed with someone named Simon. You know, Peter's full name is, is Simon Peter. Um, he's housed with Simon the Tanner uh-huh. so as opposed Th- to Peter Simon. Right. So, and then he's uh, Paul. Um, they looks like they lodged with a, a man named uh, Sergius Paulus. So, and then it mentions after that, Saul starts to go by the name of Paul. Um, so there's, there's Which is probably a, a, a more of a dignified name among the Romans. Right. Uh, rather than Saul. Um, you know, and so Saul is a dignified name uh, enough, you know, among uh, the Jews or mm-hmm. Benjaminite, Be- Benjaminites because Saul was the first king and was a Benjaminite. Yes. Um, but uh, Paul, as he's going out to the Gentiles now, I think feels like he needs to change his name to something that may have a little more cachet among the Romans. So he starts going by the name Paul. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just uh, that's my point. Be careful when you're reading. <laughs> John, do you have anything else to add? We've got uh, maybe another 30 seconds or so. Yeah, it's hard to skip the Jerusalem Council. <laughs> oh, right. But, um, I, yeah, I just think that it's important to recognize that, you know, uh, it seems like James, Jesus' brother, seems to have some kind of authority in Jerusalem. And I've wondered if Peter is kind of playing the role of, like, the traveling high council, where he's like a Brigham Young with the 12 out building the church, and you got somebody back in Jerusalem, kind of like back in Nauvoo, right, who are kind of leading, and, and so— uh, both Peter mm-hmm. and James are kind of discussing what do we do, right? Do we have to bring Gentiles in t- through Judaism? Do they have to be uh, circumcised? circumcised? Do they right. have to follow all the rituals? Yeah. Which is what's, what are called works, right? Mm-hmm. And so later when Paul is talking about works, and we're not saved by the works of the law, this is what he's talking about. We don't need to be circumcised. We don't need to be performing the annual, a- animal rituals anymore. Uh, these are the works of the law that don't save us. He's not saying that we don't have to be good, you know, or that we don't have to love people. We don't have to serve. Uh, that we're we're simply saved by election of grace. Uh, he's saying that you don't need to follow these um, laws of Moses anymore. Uh, these well, specifically the, the big issues: circumcision, the, the ritual uh, sacrifices. Mm-hmm. So this is this is brought up at this uh, this council, uh, the Jerusalem council, uh, where, you know, they, they, as, as church leadership, acknowledge that, uh, that the gospel can go out to all the world, that uh, people who are not circumcised can be good members of the church, right? Um, exactly. God is no respecter of persons. All right. Well, uh, Thank you for joining us on uh, this uh, hour of our New Testament in Context section for the Interpreter Radio Show on K Talk Radio. Stay with us for the next hour.